0: To reach his lifelong goal of a self-governing constitutional republic, James Madison blended his talents with those of key partners, the dashing Alexander Hamilton, the heroic George Washington, the magnetic Thomas Jefferson, and the soldierly James Monroe. With those extraordinary partners, Madison led the drive for for the Constitutional Convention, pressed for an effective new government, co-wrote the Federalist Papers, secured the Constitution's ratification, drafted and won adoption of the Bill of Rights, founded the nation's first political party, and guided the nation through the War of 1812. So clearly he was a slacker. (laughs) Then he handed the leadership of a happy nation to his old friend and sometime rival, Monroe. But it was his final partnership that allowed Madison to escape his natural shyness and reach the greatest heights. Dolly was the woman he married in middle age and who presided over both him and an enlivened White House. Their partnership was a love story, a unique one that sustained Madison through his political rise, his presidency, and a fruitful retirement. After practicing law for many years, David O. Stewart began to write history too. His first book, The Summer of 1787, The Men Who Invented the Constitution, was a Washington Post bestseller and won the Washington Writing Award as best book of 2007. Two years later, Impeached, The Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy, was called, by all means, the best account of this troubled episode by Professor David Donald at Harvard. The Society of the Cincinnati awarded David its 2013 History Prize for American Emperor Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America, about which he spoke here for the first time. The Lincoln Deception, An Historical Mystery About the John Wilkes Booth Conspiracy was released in late August 2013. Publishers Weekly called it an impressive debut novel. David's latest book, Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America, was released uh, last month. The Washington Post called it a portrait rich in empathy and understanding by an acknowledged master of narrative history. David also is president of the Washington Independent Review of Books, an online book review. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for David Stewart, who will talk to us today about James Madison's gift, The Power of partnership.
1: Thank you very much for the introduction and thank you all for coming out here. Some of you may know that I was supposed to be here in March and the weather was frightful, so uh, I was delighted we were able to reschedule for now and uh, the balmy days of spring. Um, I got interested in James Madison really because of two principal facts concerning him. One, which you've just heard a little bit about, was that he was so central um, to the nation's founding. um, And I became persuaded that he was really more central than anybody else, except for George Washington, who's on another another level from everyone. Um, And if I give you a quick list of what he was pivot, the events and developments he was pivotal to, um, they would include in the ni- 1780s, when the nation really was at risk of falling apart, he was—he led the call for the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787, of course, was a central player in the writing of that Constitution, framing the whole drive for a new Constitution, rather than reworking the Articles of Confederation. The fight to, for ratification afterwards, which we often don't appreciate how difficult a fight that was, uh, He led that fight uh, nationwide in Virginia, to be sure, and also in his partnership with Alexander Hamilton writing the Federalist Papers, which were really a propaganda uh, campaign in favor of ratification. Uh, In the new government, he was the leading member of the first Congress, uh, sometimes referred to as George Washington's prime minister at that time. He wrote the legislation that set up the new government. Uh, He wrote the Bill of Rights. That's sort of cool. Um, And he secured their adoption by Congress. Uh, He co-founded the first American political party. I think this is the achievement he would take least pride in. Um, (laughs) But it was then called the Republican Party, and I'll talk more about that. And then in the pivotal election of 1800, he and Jefferson led the Republicans to a seminal victory. It's often said that in a democracy, the moment you know it may succeed is when you have a peaceful transfer of power between contending parties, and 1800 is when we did that, when the Republicans won from the Federalist candidate, John Adams. Uh, He was Secretary of State for eight years, oversaw the acquisition of the Louisiana Purchase, which doubled the size of the nation. He was our first wartime president leading us into the War of 1812 and through it. And it occurred to me that he may be our only two-term president who had a better second term than his first term. (laughs) And just think back to the presidents in your lifetime. Um, The second term is tough. And uh, when he left office in 1817, The country was prosperous, we were growing tremendously, much migration out west, much immigration in, uh, and there was a good feeling uh, within the nation, and he was much acclaimed. He'd been a controversial president, uh, as war presidents often are, uh, but uh, he left on a real tidal wave of positive vibrations. So that's the first obvious fact, which is he, was involved with everything in the 30-year f- period of the founding and was important to it. But the second fact was, despite all of these achievements, he's often not noticed. Um, and I found myself telling the editor that he's sort of like the Zelig of the founding. He's in the picture, but nobody's paying any attention to him. Uh, and I wondered why that was. And, of course, there's a flip answer. Um, he was short. Um, He was skinny, Uh, he had a soft voice, and if you can imagine rooms like this one, this is an artist's rendering of the signing of the Constitution in Philadelphia, and you can finally pick out Madison. He's next to the giant Washington. He's holding the goose quill pen, so that's how we can find him. But he sort of disappears with people of such immense stature as Washington, and he was also physically quite large, uh, or someone tall and charismatic and charming like Thomas Jefferson, or, or just noisy people like John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> Madison was easy to miss. He was quiet, he was often off to the side, he didn't like big settings, and I think that experience reverberates through history, that memory of him, reverberates. So there's something to that, but I think there's another answer which is more interesting, which is he was different from most great leaders. Um, Most leaders, at least in our human expectation, have strong streaks of narcissism. They need to be at the front of the parade, preferably on a white horse. They crave recognition and acclaim. Madison didn't have those qualities. Uh, He disliked public events. He was never comfortable at them. There's a wonderful moment at his inaugural ball. It was the first inaugural ball in our history. He's elected for the first time as president. Uh, The ball's in March of 1809. And an old friend greets him and says, isn't this wonderful? Madison says, yes, I suppose, but I'd really rather be home in bed. He was a man who cared about results, not applause, about making the American experiment in self-government a success, about realizing the promise of the revolution. That was the work of his life. Uh, A long-term colleague offered a description which very much resonated with me that under all circumstances, he was ever mindful of what was due from him to others and cautious not to wound the feelings of anyone. And the phrase ever mindful of what was due from him to others stuck with me. I think many leaders are quite mindful of what is due to them from us, not so much the reverse. And when you examine all of Madison's contributions, I think you find that he rarely operated alone. His achievements in most instances were the result of great partnerships. And I found it helpful to think of the process this way. I can't swear that he did. It's unlikely he did, actually. But it's almost as though he took a modern personality test, one of these tests that organizations like to give their people and find out if they're introverted or extroverted or ISBJ or XRZW. (laughs) And he was able to figure out that, yes, he was, in fact, short. Um, (laughs) He was skinny. He had a small voice, and he had zero personal magnetism. (laughs) But if he was doing an honest self-assessment, he also would have noticed some powerful positives. He was smarter than just about everybody he met. He had a rare capacity for hard work. He had great political judgment and foresight. And he had a gift for connecting with people in smaller groups and one-on-one. So why not make common cause with those who could complement those talents? Now, we don't know that he ever made such an assessment, but the idea provided for me a clarifying lens through which to look at that extraordinary career as a man who understood the power of partnership. immodestly, I think there are important lessons from his experience for all times, but maybe particularly for our time. Now, Through this lens, I looked at five central partnerships, some of which waxed and waned through his life, and which involved some very different people. Let me run through several of them and linger a bit on the last. Uh, The first was with Alexander Hamilton. Now, they were very different men. Hamilton was a flashy, charismatic personality Uh, effectively orphaned as a young teenager. Uh, He made his own way in the world. He came to this country from the West Indies with nothing. Uh, He was brilliant at virtually everything he tried soldier, lawyer, statesman, uh, writer. Uh, And Madison in contrast was a quiet personality. He was a fortunate son Inheritor of a great estate, he's the eldest son of the largest landowner in Orange County, Virginia. Uh, he didn't have his own home until he got married at 43. He just took rooms and boarding houses and then would come back to Montpelier, the family estate. Uh, I like to point out that he lived with his mom until he was 78. Uh, she, she made it to 97, which was pretty good. Um, And it does help you appreciate that Dolly Madison was a broad-minded woman as well. Um, (laughs) But I think when Hamilton and Madison meet each other, and they're the youngest members of the Confederation Congress, this is the early 1780s, they recognized in each other two central qualities, even though there were so many differences. One was they were way smarter than everybody else there. Uh, It was not a spectacular Congress at that moment. The second was they shared a powerful impatience to make America work, to make the United States work, to make this experiment in self-government, this experiment in liberty and democracy work. Uh, They collaborated on the campaign to call the Constitutional Convention. Hamilton had the insight first uh, in 1780 before the Articles of Confederation had even been Uh, approved, uh, gone into effect. He was already saying we needed a Constitutional Convention to have a real government created. Uh, Madison was a little slower to that conclusion, but joined it uh, with great enthusiasm once he did come to that conclusion. Uh, They had very different experience at the Constitutional Convention. Hamilton had a bad time. Uh, He committed the political blunder of saying what he thought Uh, So he told the delegates that the president should serve for life, which sounded a lot like a king. Um, He said the Senate should serve for life, which sounded a lot like Dukes and Earls. And he ended up having almost no influence on the Constitution. Uh, Indeed, uh, on the final day, he said he was going to sign it, even though no man's views differ from this document more than mine. Uh, There's a wonderful moment in Washington's diary from that day where he says, uh, Hamilton wasn't even a member of a delegation, the New York delegation had all gone home except for him. So he said, well, Washington writes down, the Constitution was signed today by 10 states and Colonel Hamilton. Madison of course had a much more productive time at the convention. He took all the notes, uh, was pivotal in many of the discussions. But afterwards it was Hamilton who had the insight that a campaign needed to be led to get ratification. The framers were somewhat surprised by the negative reaction of the Constitution. Uh, There was no Bill of Rights. It was a stronger central government than many Americans had been expecting And Hamilton came up with the idea of a series of newspaper essays. He thought we should, and that was how you reach people in those days. We didn't have broadcast. It had to be on paper, and newspapers were the best way to reach people. Uh, He thought maybe 25 essays would be required. They ended up writing 85. Uh, And he tried to recruit three other partners to write these with him. They all didn't work out for different reasons. And his fourth choice was Madison, which was such a such a gift to the rest of us. And over a six-month period, they wrote these 85 essays, uh, 190,000 words for those of us who write for a living. That's a lot. Um, and what's amazing is how good it is. Um, it stands today still as the best writing on politics by any Americans. Uh, and when they put down their pens, they each went to their home state ratification conventions where there was tremendous opposition to ratification and they each succeeded in winning ratification. The second partnership is with George Washington and certainly Washington was never a peer of Madison's. He was no man's peer in this era. He was the great man. He had led us through the uh, revolution, eight years of bitter war, Uh, He had then done the most amazing thing, which was he walked away from power. Uh, He went home. He could have been despot, president, whatever he wanted. Uh, When the story was told to King George III of England that George Washington had given up his position in the army and gone back to his farm, the king didn't quite believe it. But he said, if it's true, he's the greatest man in, in the world. So Washington was the indispensable man to America. He was the one who could make anything happen. I overstate that, of course, not anything. But if he wanted something and it was not a terrible idea, people would say, fine. Madison appreciated that, and he realized that his influence would be so much greater if he were allied with Washington. So what he did was he made himself the indispensable man to the indispensable man. He was 19 years younger, sort of a natural confidant and aide. Washington always had an eye out for bright young men. He was the one who picked out both Hamilton and Madison. And if Washington needed legislation through the Virginia Assembly, Madison made that happen. If Washington wanted legislation through Congress, Madison made that happen. Madison, though quiet, uh, got things done. And Washington valued that. And for a five-year period, they were remarkably close. Madison would come and stay with Washington at Mount Vernon, something others of his political allies didn't do. And Washington's diary, which was he kept every day, on those days would simply say, stayed inside and spoke with Mr. Madison. And they planned the new government. Uh, one of the things they planned was, the inaugural address that Washington would have to make when he took office as the first president, elected unanimously. Uh, and it's a hard moment for us to contemplate. The entire government was a few hundred people and that counts the soldiers. You had a few dozen congressmen. You had Washington, and maybe a dozen clerks in New York. And Washington thought this was a very important address, so he asked Madison to write it. He wrote a short address. It only asked for one thing, which was a Bill of Rights. The fight over the ratification had persuaded both men that that was needed. Uh, Congress received this inaugural address, was very impressed with its gravity and uh, importance, thought they ought to acknowledge it, say something in response, so they asked Madison to write that Um, And Washington gets the Congressional response, he's not sure what to do. He decides he really ought to respond in some way, so he asks Madison to write that. (laughs) So the early days of the government are very much just James Madison talking to himself. Uh, But Madison did present the Bill of Rights that first summer of Congress. I love how he presented it. He had modest expectations. He said, I hope you will think this not inappropriate and not altogether useless. Um, And of course, it proved out to be neither. Um, The next partnership is the one we probably think of most with Madison, with Thomas Jefferson. And they were truly soulmates. Uh, they came from the same world. Uh, they grew up 30 miles apart. Uh, Jefferson's eight years older. Uh, both the eldest son of a ri- the richest man in the county, large slave owners. Both were brilliant, both were bookworms, interested in everything, knew something about most things. Their correspondence is a joy. They write about physics and weather and uh, literature and uh, philosophy and occasionally about politics. They're, they're always tinkering with stuff and have tools. There's a wonderful exchange of letters when Madison is trying to get his advice on a hinge. And Jefferson is very dissatisfied with Madison's description of the hinge. Um, he <laughs> just keeps saying, I, "I please describe it again. Uh, they agreed on most things. It was a remarkably uh, happy partnership for most of their career, although they were different personalities. Jefferson was much more the visionary. He thought great thoughts, a a wonderful stylist. Madison was a much more analytical personality. His writing reflects that, sad to say. Uh, He would write a declarative statement and then think of all the things that needed to be qualified, and to be sure, and he'd he'd start adding subordinate clauses, and it would become a forest of subordinate clauses. Um, His writing has been sometimes compared to insurance contracts. Um, (laughs) But Jefferson valued that, uh, and he had a practice uh, of when he'd have some great idea of running it by Madison. Madison sometimes would say, That's a terrific idea. And sometimes he'd say, That's a great idea, but you know, there's A and B and C and D and E and F. And the idea would drop. Uh, they both became disenchanted with the new government in the Washington administration, particularly the financial program. Uh, Jefferson was Secretary of State. Uh, Hamilton as Secretary of the Treasury was taking a number of steps to centralize the financial life of the nation. The assumption of the debts from the revolution from the states, have the federal government take them over to have the Bank of the United States established. Uh, Jefferson and Madison viewed this with alarm. Uh, They thought that central government (coughs) was going to be stronger and more powerful than they'd ever expected. In order to go into opposition, this is the moment when they realized although they had spent their public lives until then fulminating against faction and political parties as small minded ways to spend your time, they needed to form a political party because in a democracy or a republic, it's public opinion that's sovereign. And you have to be able to influence public opinion if you wanna change policy. And it turns out a political party is a great way to do that. You gather like-minded people. They started within Congress. Madison became the leader of an opposition bloc within the Congress. Then they reached out to people in the individual states, political activists. They became allied with different newspaper editors who would support them with their uh, writings, and were able to change the politics of the nation win that presidency in 1800, and, of course, beginning 24 years in which three neighbors from central Virginia, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, were president, all in the same party, although it kept changing its name for a while, and, of course, that party is still with us uh, as the Democratic Party, although it has changed in some material ways, um, <laughs> Fourth partnership was with James Monroe, and this was was new territory for me. I had not studied Monroe much. Uh, The relationship between Madison and Monroe was not as intellectual. Monroe was not the same sort of intellect as Jefferson and Madison. Uh, I was actually disappointed to read a number of contemporary observations about that suggested he wasn't really very smart, um, which I don't think is true. Uh, I think he was, in fact, quite a subtle and intelligent politician. Uh, But he was not someone who thought in great intellectual structures the way Jefferson and Madison did. He had a military background. He had served as a very young man in the Continental Army. Uh, and always had a military outlook. Uh, He was a large sort of strapping fellow, uh, very charismatic. Uh, And they were friends for decades, but this is an interesting partnership because they had a couple of very serious potholes. first one came in 1789 in the first election for Congress. Madison was running in his home district, and uh, Monroe was recruited to run against him. Monroe was opposing ratification of the Constitution. They both swore that they would remain friends despite the campaign. Uh, they, this is an era when people really stood for office; they didn't run for office. And Madison hated running for office, but he ran this time because Monroe was a serious opponent. Uh, they would go to uh, different; they debate each other at uh, church gatherings or public meetings. Um, on at one of them, uh, Madison, on his way home. It was the, one of the coldest uh, Januaries that Virginia had seen. Uh, and Madison got frostbite on his nose on the way home from one, and he always referred to it later as uh, a wound he had received in defense of his country. Um, <laughs> but he did win that election handily, and they did not seem to have a problem remaining friends afterwards. They said they would not, and they didn't. Uh, that was not the case 20 years later. Monroe was ambassador to Britain. He reported to Madison as Secretary of State during the Jefferson administration. This is the era of uh, Britain and France really fighting a duel to the death. Began with the French Revolution, went all through Napoleonic times. There were 20 years when they, uh, during which they were only at peace one year. And America's shipping, and we were very much a mercantile nation America's shipping became collateral damage. It was a great opportunity for our merchants. If they could do business over in Europe or in the West Indies, they could make a lot of money because the British and the French were shooting each other. But now and again, frankly more frequently than we wanted, uh, the British and French would decide to shoot us, Uh, would seize our ships, uh, seize our cargoes, sometimes seize our sailors. Uh, This happened for many years And Britain, of course, as the great maritime nation with the Royal Navy dominating the Atlantic was the greatest threat. And Monroe was asked to negotiate a trade treaty with them to try to lower the temperature. He uh, got a very bad treaty. It's not his fault. Uh, Britain was, as I said, engaged in this death struggle with France and had no interest in being kind to us. Uh, And he sent it back to uh, Madison and Madison and Jefferson hated it. The first day they read it, they just put it in a bottom drawer and never let it out again. And Monroe was mortified. He had spent three years on this and he was a prickly fellow, uh, very sensitive to slights. And he just thought he had been insulted beyond measure. Uh, when he finally was able to come back to this country, uh, he actually in the election of 1808 allowed his name to be entered as a candidate against Madison for the presidency. Uh, and although they were the only presidents to run each o- against each other in a campaign for lower office, that was the 1789 election, uh, in 1808, it really was fueled by ill feeling. Now Monroe was not a serious candidate, Madison won easily, but they did not speak for two years. They did not exchange correspondence for two years. After two years in office, Madison had a couple of problems. He was saddled with a very bad secretary of state. He actually had to write all the diplomatic correspondence for the secretary of state, his fellow named Robert Smith from my home state of Maryland, I'd take sort of embarrassing. Um, and Smith was also disloyal. He would blab about uh, cabinet secrets out in the world. So Madison, although generally tolerant of incompetent cabinet ministers, he had more than you would want any president to have, uh, finally did fire Smith. He needed somebody strong because he had decided that the country could no longer absorb the insults, the depredations of Britain and France, and we needed to go to war. And he also understood that he was not a particularly military figure, and he needed a strong cabinet. He needed a strong person as secretary of state. And so they made up their differences. Monroe was getting a little itchy in an early retirement and eager to get back to power finally and they picked up right, o- right again. Monroe was a great contributor to the Madison's presidency. He served as Secretary of State and Secretary of War and for two periods simultaneously served as both Secretary of State and Secretary of War. I'm pretty sure he's the only person ever to do, to do that uh, and helped his friend through that very difficult time with the war. Now, the final partnership is with Dolly. They were married for 42 years uh, and indeed it might reasonably be argued that he would never have been president and certainly not as successful a president without her. She was the star. She brought charisma, warmth and unfailing charm to a public personality that was a little short on all of those. Um, she was originally Dolly Payne, and like James, she grew up on southern plantations. Uh, this is the first image we have of her, uh, and you'll notice she's wearing a Quaker bonnet because she was her family was Quaker, and that was terribly important to her growing up because when she was a young teenager, the Quaker meeting in Virginia handed down a ruling that their members could not own slaves. So her father freed his slaves, which impoverished him significantly, and led his family to Philadelphia, where he tried to go into business quite unsuccessfully. But Dolly, in the urban setting, flourished. Um, I think you'll see in all of the images I show, there is a always this sort of hint of mischievous smile that we get with her, uh, she was a bit tall for her era, for a woman, she had an hourglass figure, uh, that great smile, black hair, creamy complexion, blue eyes, bright blue eyes. Men liked her. Men liked her a lot. <laughs> and I always like to point out that say what you will about Madison's small stature, his receding hairline, how skinny and reserved he was. Of all the frowners, he had the hottest wife. Hold on to that. Um, Dolly had married a Quaker lawyer in Philadelphia and had two sons with him. Her first husband and one of her sons died in the yellow fever epidemic of 1793, leaving her as a single mother and a very eligible one. Uh, She did not want for suitors uh, within just a few months after the epidemic but one of the most ardent was James Madison, who was 17, year old, 17 years older than she. Uh, and we don't have the story crisply, but we know that he saw her somewhere on the street at some event and said the equivalent of, who is that woman? And learned that who she was and that her mother ran a boarding house in Philadelphia that some congressmen stayed at, including his old college friend, Aaron Burr, So he arranged for Burr to introduce him to Dolly. And she writes a letter the day that they're going to meet. And she says, Senator Burr is bringing over for me to meet the great little Madison. (laughs) And I love the phrase because uh, yeah, he was little, but he was also great. Uh, He was a national political figure. He was rich. He was smart. He was kind. Uh, you could do a lot worse than James Madison. And I think Dolly understood that right away, understood that before she met him. Um, it was a great pleasure for me to examine their marriage, their relationship. Uh, I learned a great deal about him that was a different James Madison. You know, we always think of him as this. Creature of intellect. Uh, One of his contemporaries said, I've never seen so much mind and so little matter. Um, But there was certainly a playful side. Um, He was very flirtatious. His letters to Dolly, and there aren't too many, uh, they were not separated much at all. But they're warm and loving, Uh, long after the first rush of infatuation. And the accounts of his flirtatiousness are surprising, at uh, least were for, for me. Uh, one focuses on a period when he's president, and Dolly's widowed sister Lucy comes to stay with him. She stayed for a couple of years um, <laughs> with her children um, until she married a Supreme Court justice. Dolly was always good at hooking up ladies with eligible men, and. Uh, Apparently, what Madison liked to do with Lucy, who he he enjoyed her company tremendously, she had all of Dolly's high spirits, apparently, um, was to kiss Dolly in front of Lucy and turn to her and say, does that make your mouth water? (laughs) And and it is a little creepy. um, (laughs) But uh, it, it also, I think, gives you a a way you've never thought about James Madison. <laughs> um, and I also do like to show this image as well. This comes from when they married and it is one of the few images, it is really the only image we have where it doesn't look like somebody just shot James Madison's dog. Um, <laughs> and I do like that it, he has a little zip in that uh, painting. Um, although the Madisons never had children of their own, which I think is, caused a sense of them as this sort of semi-sad, childless couple. Uh, The reality was very different. Their house usually reverberated with the sound of children. Dolly, of course, had her son from her first marriage, but they had dozens of nieces and nephews. I lost count after 50. Uh, They would come and stay for weekends, weeks, months. Uh, Again, young, uh, well, uh, girl children, when they reached a marriageable age, would always come to stay at the White House or with them in Washington because Dolly would look after them and find them the proper army or navy officer. (laughs) Uh, And the Madisons were a lot of fun. Uh, In small groups, James was quick with a quip and a humorous anecdote. Dolly, in large and small groups, it didn't matter, was always vivacious and engaging. A niece called her a foe to dullness uh, and there's a, a lovely account of uh, when they are in retirement. And here, of course, is the image of Montpelier. Uh, I hope you all get a chance to go there if you haven't been. And there's a front porch obviously there and uh, they would run races on the front porch. I know you're thinking that's not that big a distance. Uh, they were retired. I mean, let's cut them a little slack here. <laughs> um, but uh, another perspective is during that period, uh, when Dolly and I don't mean to be indelicate, but she had grown wider with the years. Um, she would load James up on her back and oh carry him wow. around the house. <laughs> but their their fun had a purpose, uh, beginning with his eight years as Secretary of State, and this is a, a wonderful image of Dolly during that era, uh, and eight as president. Uh, She set a bright social tone for the world of the New Republic. She was gay and gracious. She always would seek out the most awkward person in the room, put him or her at their ease. Uh, She once was at a big social event carrying a volume of Cervantes' Don Quixote. Somebody said, why are you carrying Don Quixote? And she said, well, if the conversation flags, it's something I can talk about. (laughs) She thought about these things. she understood the need to provide the glamour and charisma that James simply couldn't. As wife of the president, and we didn't have the term first lady then, she was sometimes referred to as the lady presidentess. Um, She began wearing turbans, white turbans of uh, satin or velvet, and she would put a flower or flowers in the top or sometimes a piece of fruit Um, so if you were in a large social event and they would have two or three a week at the White House, uh, you would not be able to find James. He would very diligently greet everybody, go around the room, and then he would retire to a corner and talk business with a couple of gentlemen. Um, but you knew where Dolly was. She was in the middle of the room, in the spotlight, happy to be there. Just look for the fruit. There she was. (laughs) Um, there's a wonderful exchange between her and Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, with whom she liked to uh, take snuff, when he said, everybody loves Mrs. Madison, and she answered, understanding the moment perfectly, that's because Mrs. Madison loves everybody, which was not, strictly speaking, true. Um, We discover from her correspondence she actually held the grudge somewhat better than James did, but it seemed to be true, and we know that in politics that's much more important than what is true. At her parties, she mixed foreigners and federalists and Republicans, and it produced a sort of social swirl that allowed the sinews of policy and ideas to grow and strengthen in an informal setting, and that can be terribly important. As his presidency proceeded, office seekers increasingly came to see the lady presidentess to present their petitions, and we don't know about any conversations between James and Dolly on the subject, they were of course discreet, but we do know some of those people got jobs. And she was in truth a political partner, a loyal and sure-footed one who not only warmed his private life, but helped him forge a new Republican style for for the nation. Now, Dolly's greatest day in the White House was in many ways James Madison's worst day as president. As this image portrays, it's the day in August of 1814 when the British troops marched into Washington and burned our public buildings. We'd had a uh, sort of attempt at a battle out in Bladensburg, Maryland, that where the Maryland militia simply ran. The fighting didn't last very long. Madison had actually ridden out. He's our last president who went to a battlefield to try to rally the troops. Um, He had trouble controlling his horse. Uh, He didn't really rally anybody, which was a problem with him as president. Um, And it was sometimes referred to later on as the Bladensburg races rather than the battle. Uh, The word came back to Dolly, who was anxious in the White House. She wrote a friend that she only wished she could put cannon in the upper levels so she could repel the British when they came. But she had to flee as well. She had the public papers packed up. She had the silver packed up. And at the last minute, she remembered the Gilbert Stewart portrait of Washington. Now, we're a republic. We don't have a crown jewels or a crown or a scepter. But Washington is, even in 1814, a revered symbol of our nation. And that portrait was known to everyone. Copies of it hung in many people's homes. It had been copied so frequently. And as she was about to leave, Dolly noticed the portrait, instructed that it be taken down and saved. Uh, they couldn't take it down, so they had to cut it out. It was rolled up and carried away by a gentleman who's kept it safe. And for a day when many Americans thought Madison had acted the coward, and he was denounced for this episode. I think, in fact, it's been such a black mark, it probably keeps him off the five best presidents list. It's just not a good day when foreign troops march through your capital and burn your buildings. But Americans were so heartened that Dolly had had the presence of mind and the spirit to preserve this terribly important artifact. Now, the Madisons enjoyed a mostly happy retirement at Montpelier. In that time, though, I found that slavery began to cast an even larger shadow in his life. Now, it had always been there. Uh, I was struck when I started the project how little people remarked on the fact that his grandfather had been poisoned to death by one of his own slaves. Seems to me a story that everybody at Montpelier knew. The 90 black slaves and the six or eight or 10 white Madison certainly all knew that story. They might have whispered about it, but they didn't talk about it. Madison never said a word about it that we know about. But it's an episode that captures I think some of the violence, the oppression that that institution, that evil institution involved. And as a young man, Madison struggled with the contradictions between slavery and the American liberty that he was dedicating his life to. He bought land in upstate New York and he wrote a friend that he hoped to move there and never live on the labor of slaves. Uh, He never moved. Uh, Virginia was home, and it was a great political platform for him. Life was awfully comfortable at Montpelier. Yet he understood these contradictions so deeply. At the Constitutional Convention, he actually became a bit of a made himself unpopular, I think, with his fellow delegates, because he kept telling them, why are you people worried about big states versus small states and these silly things you're arguing about? Slavery is what's going to tear us apart. Slavery is the thing that is the greatest danger to this country. And he truly feared that it would undermine the nation. During the heart of his political career, it seemed to me that he was able to compartmentalize his terrible unhappiness about slavery. He was doing fascinating things. He had great responsibilities. But then when he enters retirement and he's at Montpelier and again, he's surrounded by his slaves. And the times have changed. In 1820, there's the Missouri Compromise, which at bottom is a fight over the spread of slavery into new territories. Abolitionism begins to spread. He has visitors who come to see him from the north and from Europe and they all lecture him on slavery. He hates it. In 1831, the Nat Turner Rebellion breaks out in southeastern Virginia. 60 white people are slaughtered, 100 slaves are slaughtered in return. Dolly writes a friend, we know we have no defense here so I am quiet. It a terrifying time, and he couldn't hide from it anymore, and he became more and more obsessed by slavery. He had dealt with all the great problems of the American nation. When we were at risk of falling apart in the 1780s into separate nations, New England, the middle states, and the southern states, he pushed for the Constitution, he pushed for that convention, and he got the Constitution ratified. When we were disrespected around, the, internationally because of the war between Britain and France. He took the nation to war to establish its integrity. And here was the third great challenge. And he wrote memoranda to himself on the subject and some correspondence on it, where he tried to develop a plan where we would take all our uh, Western lands, public lands, sell them off, use the money to buy the slaves out of slavery, and then ship them somewhere else. He couldn't imagine an integrated society that was just beyond him. He thought prejudice was just too deep. Uh, the plans were uh, pipe dreams. There wasn't enough money. There were too many slaves, nearly 2 million by this point. Weren't enough ships. and I think he did have trouble with the slavery issue at bottom because it was, a, it did involve most vividly a failure of the human heart, not the sort of issue that Madison was best suited to address. Now, in his final years, James became increasingly decrepit. Oh, excuse me, let me just mention this. This is one thing he did. In his final years, I mentioned the visitors who would come and lecture him about slavery. He became so annoyed with that that he started to build these sort of model slave quarters. Uh, They're gonna be restored. There's a grant at Montpelier to do that. Uh, and The practice, of course, was to put the slave quarters out of sight behind trees or underneath or somewhere where you couldn't see them because they weren't very nice. Uh, So Madison built nice ones his house slaves, uh, they had glass windows and uh, hung doors, and uh, some had a second story. Um, and it's almost more disappointing that he does this and he never sells a slave. He never frees. I'm sorry, I didn't mean sells a slave. He never frees a slave. Uh, but this was the the step he did take. Um, We do have this image of Madison just two years before his death. Uh, He lived to 85, which for a fellow who'd been sick much of his life was, I think surprised him and many others. Uh, He uh, became quite decrepit. He uh, had to be, he lived in only two rooms the last two years of his life. Uh, Some days he had to be carried from one room to the other. But until the final weeks, his mind remained bright Uh, He loved to have visitors come, and he would talk to them for hours. They would constantly try to get out of the room and say, well, no, no, I don't want to wear you out. And he'd say, no, no, it's okay, stay. Um, Dolly missed the parties and the gaiety of Washington City. She needed people. James really just needed ideas and books and correspondence. Um, He had to dictate his letters to Dolly uh, and to her brother to write out she wrote one friend, his hands and fingers are still so swelled and sore as to be nearly useless, but I lent him mine. Uh, James died in 1836. And Dolly, after a few years of trying to make a go of it at Montpelier, uh, an effort to which she was particularly not well-suited, never a woman of business, certainly didn't have any interest in agriculture, uh, ended up selling Montpelier Uh, back in Washington. One thing happened that was very lucky for us, which was she sat for a photograph. This is the really the only photograph we have of that generation. and I think you can see again that sort of hint of a smile coming on, but also uh, some of her strength of character as well. She lived to 1849, and ultimately died in a sort of genteel poverty. Now, having held forth about Madison's productive partnerships, I'd like to close by talking for a minute about Madison himself because he was able to form these partnerships because of who he was, because of his genuineness, his integrity, his modesty, and his open heartedness. That's what people, that's what his partners reacted to. And I found that shines through in episode in when he gets the news of the treaty ending the war of 1812, the Treaty of Ghent. Now it's uh, March of 18f- I'm sorry, February of 1815. Dolly and James are living in the Octagon House, which still stands on 17th Street, because of course the White House has been burned. And there's a rumor that there is peace treaty. It takes weeks for news to get there from, get to this country from Britain or from uh, Europe. And a Pennsylvania Senator hears the rumor and rushes to the octagon house to ask Madison if it's true. And I'll, let me read just a few sentences from the book. The Senator found the house dark, the president sitting solitary in his parlor in perfect tranquility, not even a servant in waiting. The senator asked if the rumor was true. Madison bade him sit down. I will tell you all I know, he said, then confirmed that he thought there was peace, but he had no official confirmation. The senator recalled with some wonder what he called the president's self-command on the occasion and his greatness of mind. The War of 1812 had truly been Mr. Madison's war, as his opponents called it. It was about principles, not gain. It was fought with a quiet tenacity, sometimes ineptly, and with endless tolerance of those who opposed it. A friend of Madison's wrote years later that the war had been conducted in perfect keeping with the character of the president. And when peace came, Madison welcomed it in a darkened house, sitting alone with his thoughts. Thank you very much. you could possibly have questions after that, um, I would be happy yes. to take some. I think there are people with microphones. Yes. Uh, Madison seemed to embody servant leadership. Uh, he kept copious notes and correspondence and, and all of that. What happened to those documents when, uh, when he passed away? Well, it varies. Uh, he spent much of his time in retirement Organizing his papers Uh, he he in fact harassed all of his old friends for their his letters to them So he he tried to get them back Uh, That was both for history, but it was also for Dolly. He thought they would be uh, Very valuable she could sell them and make some money Uh, So we do have a great many of his uh, letters that they are now available online uh, Through uh, most of them are there's still a few holes in the collection they're still working on in uh, Charlottesville. But uh, it's at a website called Founders Online. uh, And I read 25,000 of them. So there's lots. (laughs) Uh, So we have that. the notes from the Constitutional Convention, which of course were the treasure. Uh, Dolly was able to sell those for significant money. She got $30,000 for them uh, from Congress. But the other papers she really didn't get anything for. Uh, those were set not to be released by his rule until the last delegate died. Uh, he was the last delegate to die, <laughs> so uh, that worked out, um, and, and we do have those as well. So it's a pretty well-documented life. We do know uh, he, any man who goes through his papers for a number of years probably has destroyed a few, so he almost certainly did that as well. But we do have a, a tremendous paper record of his career. You mentioned his struggles with uh, slavery, for example, and his own struggles with that, friends and so forth. But you also mentioned that Dolly was a Quaker, right, in her family history. So one would have thought, or was there anything in there that in fact she influenced it to as well of being uh, against slavery? That's a very interesting question. Um, I kept looking for some evidence that she was unhappy about slavery. I mean, when she married him, he was a major slaveholder. This was not a secret. He had slaves, two or three, who would look after him in Philadelphia, who traveled with him. Uh, And I found nothing in her writings, uh, correspondence, and we have quite a bit from her as well, that indicated any discomfort with slavery. Now, that could be that she simply wasn't going to put that on paper and make him uncomfortable and get in his way as a political figure. I am more inclined, though, to think that she wasn't upset about it. Uh, There are a few references in her correspondence to slaves. Uh, Mostly, she's frustrated with them because they're not doing the work well. Lady servant, She banishes to the fields for a couple of weeks because she thinks she's stealing from her, from the, the pantry, which she might well have been. Um, and she says, well, I suppose I'll have to have her back because the house doesn't run well without her. Um, so that Quaker tradition doesn't seem to have survived much with her. I also have to say that she liked not being a Quaker. Um, She liked fun. Uh, She liked to play cards. Um, She was, uh, by all accounts, not a very good card player, which is always charming. Um, And uh, there is a letter where she writes that she has to go back to Philadelphia for medical treatment uh, when he's Secretary of State. And she's there for a number of weeks. And her old Quaker acquaintances come by, and she writes a friend basically, I'm paraphrasing, uh, it was a nightmare to have these people in my room again. (laughs) And uh, so I don't think she associated the Quaker world with with much fun. Uh, Along those uh, same lines, uh, was uh, he in in your studies? Was he influenced by Benjamin Franklin at all? They were very far apart in age. Uh, Madison could have been Franklin's grandson. They only intersected physically Uh, during the Constitutional Convention. And Madison could not get enough of Franklin. He would go to his house at night he would dance attendance upon Franklin. He loved talking to Franklin. Franklin was fun. He was interesting. You know, the, the guy had been everywhere. He knew everybody. I mean, you, you could do a lot worse than Ben Franklin for the evening. Um, I can't trace any particular idea, any line of thinking to Franklin at that point. Franklin's a pretty old guy by then. He's, he's nearly 80. Uh, but uh, he held him in great high regard. Could you comment on Madison's reaction to the Hartford Convention? Uh, I love the chance to talk about this. Uh, The Hartford Convention, for those of you who are not so comfortable with it, uh, New England hated the War of 1812, or many New Englanders hated it. The governors of Massachusetts and Connecticut refused to call out the militia to support the effort. Uh, A lot of New Englanders refused to pay taxes to support the war effort. They did trade with Britain. They couldn't imagine why we would be fighting with Britain. It was just suicidal as far as they could figure it out. Um, And the war was not a glorious march to victory. We had lots of setbacks. And there is a episode in late 1814 or early January 1815 when delegates from three New England states gather in Hartford There's great fear that they're going to approve secession. Uh, And Madison really shows his colors through this whole period with all of this opposition to his policies and his war. He takes no effort, no step against them. Uh, He doesn't prosecute any of the people who speak out against the war effort. He doesn't uh, lean on any uh, any of the governors doesn't punish them in any way politically. Uh, He doesn't prosecute editors who who write bitter denunciations of him. And it's quite a contrast because if you remember John Adams as president had approved the Sedition Act under which he threw a, a dozen editors in jail including a famous one here in Richmond, James Callender for writing scandalous things about him. And Thomas Jefferson, who denounced the Sedition Act when he was president, he threw another dozen editors in jail using state libel laws, which he said was okay. (laughs) And neither of those men had wars. So here's Madison at war with, frankly, seditious attitudes being proclaimed from the mountaintops through New England and other parts of the country as well, but particularly New England. And he never lifts a finger against them. It was the most remarkable display of his commitment to free speech and to liberty. And with the convention, he did take one step. (laughs) He sent some troops to Hartford (laughs) just in case. And the officer who was in charge of the troops arranged to parade the troops through central Hartford every day. (laughs) Uh, Whether those were instructions for Madison or not, we don't know. But the convention came back with some exhortations to peace, some exhortations to amending the Constitution, but nothing more damaging than that. Uh, The New Englanders were not ready to tear up the Constitution and to end the Union. And uh, Madison's wisdom in that episode, I think, is pretty impressive. Maybe the last question, if there is one. One Or maybe that was the last question.